Hello and welcome back to the Hi-Ho Podcast. My name is Victoria Sundin. And I'm David Westbrook. And this is Have You Heard Of? I legitimately don't think I know what comes next in that song. Me neither. I think it just stops there. I think I really do think it's like two seconds long. <laughs> Good job, Vivaldi. Good job, Vivaldi. That's I don't know it. why he's so famous. <laughs> Alright, welcome back to um, the Hi Ho Podcast, and this week I'm going to ask you, David, have you heard of Moritz Moskowski? No, I have actually not heard of Moritz Moskowski. I have never heard of this man in my life. I have only heard of him as so far as I've listened to a couple of his pieces that we are working on to... I mean- uh, Obviously, at this point, we have heard of them because we do research before this podcast, so there's some credibility to it, but when when I ask, I I imply, like, have you heard of him before we decided to make an episode on him? No, I had not heard of him before we decided to make an episode on him. Because it's kind of strange, I say, oh, I've never heard of this man, let me tell you his life story. Yeah, you know, it's a little bit confusing, but (laughs) say la vie. Yeah, no, I had never actually really heard of this man before. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. He has a very Eastern European name. Yes. That's all I gathered. Yes, very Polish, I assume. Is he Polish? He is Polish. He was born in 1854 in Prussia, which is now known as Poland. Mm. Yes, and he was a member... He was a member. He was part of a Pol- a very wealthy Polish-Jewish family... And at a time when Jewish people weren't so open about their Jewishness, he was a very vocal Jew, and he was very adamant about his beliefs. Good for him. Yeah. That's really good. We love vocal Jews. So he grew up in a wealthy family, and so he began his piano training at home, which I imagine his parents were wealthy enough to hire some tutors just to, like, help him learn scales, help him learn, like fingering like one two three four five you know basic piano Mm -hmm. stuff yeah about the extent of my piano knowledge one two three four five that's it that's all you that's That's really all you need to know the cursed six uh that's really where piano becomes advanced Mm -hmm. you heard it Mm -hmm. here first heard it here first folks so he began his actual formal piano training in 1865 when his family moved to dresden germany at, cool. um, have you ever been to Dresden? I've maybe. I think I have been to Dresden. If I remember correctly, they've got this big, like, white church that's in the middle of Dresden. Maybe sounds right. Uh, that sounds right. <laughs> I'm sure that a lot of those cities have giant white churches. <laughs> so, but yes, I do think I've been to Dresden before. This should just be a recurring theme for every episode. As I ask you if you've ever been to any of the places that I talk about. Well, with the standard groupage of classical musicians uh, and where we went on that trip, there's a pretty high chance that I have been to where they've been. Nice. So 
he moved to Dresden in 1865, and he started his formal piano training at the Dresden Royal Conservatory, which today is now known as the Karl Maria von Weber Conservatory. Oh, nice. Cool. We love Weber. Yeah, good old Weber. Good old Weber. Friend Revolutionary. Of Mm-hmm. Friend of the podcast. Maybe we should talk about Weber one day. One day. He doesn't get enough. He doesn't get enough love. But not today. We're going to keep talking about Mr. Miskowski, which <laughs> I already told David this, but um, <laughs> we're going to make it a game to see how many times I mess up his name. It's okay. We do like some alliteration, though, and he's got some good alliteration going on there. Mr. Moritz Miskowski. <laughs> Triple M. <laughs> Guy Fieri could never. So... As I said, he began his formal piano training in 1865, and then he moved to Berlin in 1869, where he studied at the Julius Stern Conservatory. He began studying, he continued his piano studies there, and then he moved on to the Neue Akademie der Tonkunst, where he began studying composition and orchestration. We love a good Tonkunst. Mm-hmm. My best friend Tonkunst. Oh, yeah, Definitely. <laughs> You know, doesn't he, isn't he in those Mission Impossible movies? (laughs) I hate myself. (laughs) I'm keeping that. Oh, you have to. So overall, he's been very classically well-trained as a pianist, um, as somebody who could afford all of that training because of his family's wealth. And so he's, I think he's... In the of the spectrum of composers and pianists, where they're just naturally super talented, mm-hmm. and, or they trained very hard, he leans more towards trained very hard. I don't know of his natural talents. Um, as a child, I don't know if he was a prodigy or not, because there are no yeah. sources that say that he was. But uh, he went to three different schools, so he has to be extremely well trained, at least. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. And back then, it's not like there was much else that you could really do. You know. Mm-hmm. So then, in 1871, he was invited to be a professor at the Neue Academy. So there he began teaching piano and composition, and he also played first violin with the school's orchestra. Whoa! He played violin and piano? He played violin and piano. He had to have been pretty good at violin to be mm-hmm. first violin at a orchestra. Yeah, a lot of sources say that he was um, equally as good at the violin as he was at piano. That's impressive. That's really impressive. Jack of all trades. Yeah, a real real renaissance man. Ain't that the truth. Two instruments. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) So, in 1873, I assumed he graduated at this point, and Miskowski made his debut as a concert pianist at the age of 17. Wow, that's pretty yeah. good. So that's pretty, like, that's about standard age of prodigy, prodigalness, prodigality. Prodigology. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty, that's kind of actually a little bit late, it feels like, to get your footing back then, at least. I mean, sure, I know nowadays, you know, the, the like, 12-year-olds and all that, they kind of get pushed aside, but that's only because their hands are too small, you know? Justice for small hands. Justice for small hands. Shout out to all my small-handed piano friends. You gotta love Scriabin. I'll get there. Um, oh no. So, overall, he was received very well as a concert pianist, and he began touring nearby cities to establish his reputation and to gain experience, 
And then, none other than our boy Franz Liszt began endorsing him. That's a glowing endorsement. Franz, oh my god, Franz Liszt, please don't clock me, oh my god. (laughs) Oh, Franz. So, Liszt personally invited Moskowski to play one of his piano concertos um, with two pianos Mm -hmm. in front of a private audience during a matinee performance about two years after his debut. So Liszt, oh, wow. played, Liszt played second piano, and Miskowski played first piano. So they played one of Liszt's piano concertos? Mm-hmm. Do you know which one it was? Not off the top of my head. That's okay. So he continued touring throughout Europe as a concert pianist, um, and he was also beginning to become popular as a composer and a conductor. Mm-hmm. So now he's a he's a pianist, he's a violinist, he's a... Uh, conductor, and he's a uh, composer. But I don't think he played violin outside of his days in conservatory. Interesting. I mean, he probably, he probably like, played and practiced and stuff yeah, like yeah. that, but probably not at, like, a, a concert level, because there's a reason why there aren't that many concert pianists that are also concert violinists. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And vice versa. Yep. Um, but in the mid-1880s, uh, he's started developing some neurological problems in his arm. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. And so he stopped performing as much so he could focus more on composition and conducting. Mm-hmm. So he wrote 12 etudes for the left hand for piano. Um, they were published in 1915. And so maybe he wrote those when he really couldn't play with his right arm anymore. Mm-hmm. I started thinking about that. But I don't know. I know Scriabin was famous for publishing uh, piano music for the left hand only. So I don't know if it was just like a a fad at the time. It was like, oh, let's all write piano music for the left hand. Or if he did it so that he could play piano. Well, if I remember correctly, I think Scriabin broke his hand. Mm Mm-hmm. So, okay. In 1884, Moskowski married... A young French lady by the name of Henrietta Chaminade, um, who was the younger sister of a French composer and pianist, Cécile Chaminade. Oh, wait, wait. Yeah. Ha ha. Ha ha, baguette. Yes, oui. <laughs> um, and together they had two children, a son and a daughter, but they mm-hmm. divorced six years later when Henrietta left him for another man. Moritz. Rip the dream. Oh, the scouse got spoused out of marriage. <laughs> I'm glad that finally went somewhere. I was afraid it was just going to stop dead in its tracks. Hey, what can I say? I'm a poet and I don't even know it. Okay. Um, in 1887, he was invited to London, where he had the chance to introduce many of his orchestral pieces to the oh, cool. to the London audience. So he wrote more than just like concerti. Did he write symphonies also? He wrote one symphony. Oh, cool. We'll get to a full list of everything he composed. Not a full list, but yeah. an overview of everything he composed. But yes, he did compose a few works for chamber orchestra and string quintets Mm -hmm. um as well as just orchestral pieces in general a lot of orchestral suites but he did write one symphony 
Oh, cool. Nice. Don't know how popular it is. Well, I've never heard of this man in my life, so I'm going to say maybe not that popular. Miskowski Symphony Number 1. Oh, Miskowski. The Maz 1. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Dang. Buffalo Wild Wings could never. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Sponsor us. Spon- <laughs> the weirdest sponsorship. <laughs> So while he was in London, he was also awarded honorary membership of the Royal Philharmonic Society. Ooh, nice. Look, Look at his credentials. Go. Yeah. Wow. My resume could never. Mm-mm. So now Miskowski is rich. He's famous. He's newly divorced. He's living his life. So he moves to Paris in 1897. <laughs> he's single. He's young. He's just bought himself a brand new red convertible sports car. He got He's ready himself to hit a the jag. Towns. He got himself a jag. <laughs> Moritz Miskowski drives a jag. All I will say is Miskowski had a very impressive mustache, and so I think that's just the kind of guy that would drive a jag. So true. So true. A divorced pianist. A divorced <laughs> concert pianist that's got a killer mustache. Yeah, he drives a Jag. <laughs> it's a Jag or a Bentley. There's no other alternatives. Mm-mm. Porsche, get out of here. Ferrari? More like Ferbai. Forget about it. <laughs> Forget about it. Lamborghini? More like Lamborghini. Hey. Hey. So, he moves to Paris in 1897, as all mm-hmm. rich people do. Um, and he was frequently sought after as a teacher for composition. And um, although he could have afford his own exclusion because he was pretty famous in Europe at this point, um, he was more than happy to help aspiring pianists and composers. Oh, wow. So he took on a lot of students while he was in Paris. Nice. Look at him go. That's good. It's always good whenever like these incredible pianists are willing to teach other people. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. Um, he was many times invited by piano manufacturers to appear in the United States to show off their new pianos, but because it was so expensive to travel to the United States, he refused all the time. Can't blame a man. Uh-uh. So he never, he never got to sail the ocean blue to mm. the, to the good old U.S. of A. Honestly, back then, probably wasn't really missing out on that much. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I, personally, I love pianos, but I'm not about to spend, you know, a multi-month boat ride just so that I could play a few pianos and hopefully not die from, like, pirates or... And, and for what? Clout? Yeah, scurvy. Or however else people died back then. It's a real disease with real consequences. We exist. <laughs> we live in a society. <laughs> um, and so he was living life in Paris, you know, mm-hmm. teaching students, being rich, you know, just living, got his jag, living his life. Mm-hmm. Um, but in 1908, when Miskowski was 54... Um, he had already sort of become a recluse, and then he began suffering in poor health. Oh, no. And his popu- his music wasn't as popular anymore, and so 
obviously wasn't making as much money as he used to. And he stopped taking in composition pupils because, quote, they wanted to write like artistic madmen such as Scriabin, Schoenberg, Debussy, etc. Debussy. I mean... I guess, like, I guess, like, in the grand sense, Debussy did write some kind of jarring stuff, but... Yeah. If you, if you listen to, if you put the music of Debussy, Scriabin, and Schoenberg on, like, and told, like, ten people to listen to it, right? And they're like, now, which one would you like to listen to? Ten out of ten oh, people Debussy. will say Debussy, yeah. All, all the way. Maybe early Scriabin. Um, I like early Scriabin. And late Scriabin. I also... Full disclosure, I like Scriabin. <laughs> so, his life wasn't going that great, and he lost nearly all of his money because mm. he decided it would be a good idea to invest um, to invest it in German, Polish, and Russian bonds and securities, which were all deemed worthless because of, you guessed it, World War One. <laughs> Ah, oh, that's awful. You backed yep. the wrong horse there, Muskowski. Mm-hmm. Mm. Not a good time. Okay, so this is probably the saddest thing I could find oh, no. about his life. Um, On December 21st, 1924, when he was very ill and heavily in debt, Muskowski's mm-hmm. friends and admirers arranged a grand testimonial concert on his behalf at Carnegie Hall. Ooh, fancy. Mm-hmm. It involved around 15 grand pianos on stage with his former students and well-known pianists at the time playing at the concert. And there was a conductor and it raised a lot of money. There were a lot of people there. And so they raised about $13,275 of that time. That's which a lot of in money. T- in 2017's money, that's $187,793.67. Wow, that lasts you like a year. Yeah, and so all At that least. <laughs> all that money was invested into uh, life insurance for Miskowski and to cover his debts, but the money never got to him as he died of stomach cancer. That's so sad. Yeah. <laughs> you know who this man really needed in his life? Who? Charles Ives, insurance extraordinaire. You're so right. That could have solved everything. Could have saved this man's life if only he could, he did. He could still be alive today. <laughs> he could still be alive today. If only he'd embraced those weird composers like Debussy. You never know. So true. When your strange pupil ends up being an insurance salesperson. Hey. Death and taxes. And Death insurance. and taxes. And insurance. <laughs> yeah. So, um, that money instead went to, um, his funeral fund and to his wife and son. Mm. So that's the life of Mr. Moritz Muskowski. Oh, God. That's there the life is. of Mr. Moritz Muskowski. I went this entire time without screwing up. And there it is. <laughs> All right. So he wrote a lot of music mm-hmm. throughout his time. Mostly music for piano, um, for two-hand and four-hand piano, as well as piano etudes. Mm -hmm. He wrote music for string quintets and chamber orchestra, like chamber music. 
Um, he wrote two piano concertos. He wrote a symphonic poem about Joan of Arc. What? So, <laughs> Wait a I, second. I think that's a, a form of program music. If you don't know what program music is, it's orchestral music that is supposed to tell a story. And so the story is printed out on the program and you're supposed to follow along. Um, Berlioz was a famous yeah. composer who did a lot of program music. Yeah. I. That's weird. I want to hear this piece. Right? Scriabin did a poetic symphony. The Prometheus is supposed to be, like, representative of Prometheus, I think. It's, it's titled the Prometheus Symphony, so one would assume that it might have something to do with... One would assume. Though with Scriabin, one should never assume. <laughs> so, he also wrote a violin concerto. He wrote one opera. Nice. Do, what's wrote, it about? Do you have an idea? It's about the conquest of Granada, Spain. It's like an ancient story. I don't know how ancient it is, but it's an old story. It's called Baobdil, I think. <laughs> My favorite opera, Baobdil. You know? Oh, Boab. It's called Boabdil. Oh, okay. That's better than Baobdil. <laughs> Baobdil could not be a real word. No. He wrote a three-act ballet. He nice. wrote music for the organ. Mm. And one symphony. Cool. So he, he had a pretty good output, all things considered. Mm-hmm. I mean, he did spend most of his life composing. Yeah. So it would make sense that he would have some good output. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. His style has been described as, quote, despite the balance and bright limpidity of his playing and his wonderful technique, which aroused the enthusiasm of admirers throughout Europe, his music has also been described as, quote, devoid of the masculine and the feminine. End quote. What does that mean? It's just <laughs> gender neutral music. <laughs> Sorry, Anyone can listen I to only, it. I only compose asexual <laughs> classical music. <sighs> that's, <laughs> that's so weird. I don't know. I think it's supposed to be like a an early euphemism of like minimalist like music. Mm, I don't know. I've never heard of this music prior to this podcast, so I want to know how to describe it. I guess we've got to listen to some. Guess we have to. We'll get to that in a second. Um, Excellent. A Polish prime minister said this about Miskowski, and it's probably the quote that makes him the most famous. Mm-hmm. Like, it's the quote that would, it would make sense that he would be famous from this quote. Anyway. Okay. So this prime minister says, after Chopin, Miskowski best understands how to write for the piano and his writing embraces the whole gamut of piano technique. So this guy of, says that Miskowski is the next Chopin. Of course, a Polish man would say that after the best Polish piano player is the second best Polish piano player. <laughs> hey, Lord, Lord knows they're not going to be talking about Franz Liszt. Nope. Nope. Not if not that Hungarian man. Patriotism is important. This is true. 
This is true. I mean, I can I can grant that. I mean, from what I have heard of his uh, piano concerto, it's really good. There's some really good parts to it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, and I I do actually thinking about it, see where they're coming from when they talk about like not really masculine or feminine in its appeal. The more that I think about it, because it is, and we'll listen to it here in a little bit, but um. It is very much like, I don't even know what the word is. You'll have, you just have to hear it. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's get to it. Awesome. Let's get to it. So now we come to the point of the podcast where we listen to some music. Today, we'll be analyzing the first and fourth movements of Moskowski's Piano Concerto in E-flat major, Opus 59. We're going to try something a little different this week. We'll be talking as we listen to the music instead of stopping after small sections. Since the music is so dense and there's a lot going on at once, most of which is repetitive, we figured this would be the most efficient way to analyze the music. If you end up liking this method more, please shoot us an email or leave us a review saying so. So, without further ado, let's get to it!
It's hard to pick out, like, a main theme. Yeah, the only one I've recognized was the one at the very beginning. At the very beginning, yeah. It feels very through-composed. Mm-hmm. It's cool, though. Yeah. It's very romantic. Ooh, I like that horn. Ooh, those parallel forts are hard. <laughs> Okay, we're in G major. Yeah. That's also hard. It's all hard. Yes. Well, he was very well trained, so he had to be prolific in some way to yes. write all of this. Very true. Takes a good pianist to write good piano music. So true. somewhere. Mm-hmm. expecting that.
Alright, we've got some relative minor action. Uh-huh. I appreciate how Miskowski knows how to still make the piano the the star of the piece, but also, like, incorporating the orchestra to complement it. Yeah. I feel like a lot of concertos are just, like, piano, 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 orchestra. Piano, piano, uh-huh. piano, piano, orchestra, you know? Yes. right there and we're back to the a section yeah there's a theme okay so there is some sort of form
it's really pretty. We're going to move on now to the fourth movement of the piece. Um, there are some parts that are going to be similar between the first movement and the fourth movement. So without further ado, let's give it a listen. happy it's on the majestic side of big hand piano music of the romantic era yes has a very list feel to it you know mm -hmm. like some of these melodies those very like happy-esque melodies that you'll kind of hear in like the oh like the hungarian rhapsodies you know and stuff like that yeah or is yeah. dsra concerto yeah well except that's not happy no. I like how he adds in the melody into the 16th notes that are being played. Just gives it more dimension.
That doesn't look easy to play. No, this sounds and looks hard as heck. <laughs> yeah, I definitely see the influence of List in this. Oh yeah, 100%. The wide range of the piano uh, and um, just the constant motor movement. That's redundant, yeah, but just the constant movement of um, 16th notes. Yeah, that just barrage of 16 notes that just don't end. But this also sounds slightly Russian, like earlier Russian. Yeah, um, I could definitely see, like, some Tchaikovsky. Yeah, I was thinking Tchaikovsky. Especially if you listen to his um, 1812 overture. Mm-hmm. You can see similarities from the two. The violas have their moment. Nice! This is a viola stand household. So true. That was cool. I like how we built that up and then pulled that back to just the piano. Mm-hmm. And here, uh, once again, you can see that Moskowski does a good job of giving the piano its moment to shine and the orchestra its moment to shine, but he merges the two very well and very seamlessly. Mm-hmm. I like how he's also passing off that usage of the main melody between the strings and the wood and the wind section relatively mm-hmm. nicely. I like that almost like bird call feeling you get with that piano, that high piano trill. Mm-hmm. Right? This has a very almost pastoral feel to it. Yeah. I sense the vibes. Mm hmm.
There's our theme from the first movement. It's a good way to round out the entire concerto. our good old Beethoven 15151. It definitely sounded like there were a few horn notes in that last part that were suspect. They were so filled with passion they just started playing whatever they wanted. That's okay. They they said, I don't care what note comes out, it's gonna be a good one. That's okay. We all make mistakes. That's what makes music so great. That's a really cool piece though. I like how it's rounded, especially with that, with that ending. Um, very majestic. I like how you don't feel the return of the opening theme of the first movie. I like how you don't feel it coming. Yeah, it's definitely like a, the ending of this movement is definitely an homage to um, the beginning of the, fir- of the first movement. Um, and I think it, I agree, it does round out the entire piece very well. Yeah, it gives it a really good feel. Because the ending is not a good place to introduce new material. <laughs> no. Beethoven. I'm looking at you. I didn't name any names, um, so mm. let it be on record that uh, I said nothing. You ever add new themes to your piece during the coda? Beethoven did. That is not a good compositional technique. No, never do anything that Beethoven did. The worst composer to mock. Yeah, that's a really cool piece. Yeah, um, I agree. I'm surprised this is not played in more piano concerto competitions. I can see why it's not, because it while it is very showy, it's not showy all the time. And I feel like a piano, call me out if I'm wrong, but I feel like piano competitions play a lot of barber and rock um, because it's all show all the time. Yeah, to an extent. I mean, there's a lot of those like, there's a lot of those like barber, rock, Tchaikovsky. Um, but I seem to remember when I was turning... For context, at the college we went to, there is a uh, international piano competition that happened every year, and because I was one of the only people that was good enough at reading um, sheet music to be able to quickly do it, I was always roped into turning pages for the event. But so, and yes, it is as stressful as you can imagine. <laughs> um, it's, I, a, it's very high stakes. It's so high stakes, and I was really good at it. I always got compliments. But I swear to God, the Prokofiev, I can't remember if it's the two or the three, there's one movement that's just atonal and fast. Like, and there's only like eight measures per page. And it's like 200 beats per minute. And I would always mess up the page turns. Luckily enough, though, the pianist that would accompany um, always knew that I was going to mess up those page turns, so she would do them. Um, And I always felt like... That's the kind scum of, of the earth whenever <laughs> I missed one of those page turns. But she would always smile even though she was playing a million notes at the time. She still was kind enough to look over at me and smile and say, it's okay. 
Oh, that's nice of her. But I definitely, I do see this as a piece that can be played in a concert setting. Um, it's very majestic and it's obscure enough that people will be excited. If you're really into music history, you'll be very excited to um, listen to it. If you're not, then you're just like, oh, cool. Another piano piece. <laughs> mm-hmm. I agree. I'm very interested to know if this being in a major key, because E major is not a normal key for... Um, piano concertos from my my memory of typical piano concertos there's just something about major in my mind that doesn't have the the oomph factor you know mm-hmm. that minor keys have as far as like prowess and power yeah well it's like i said earlier that um a lot of rachmaninoff's piano concertos are in a minor key and they're very dramatic very intense and i think the minor key helps convey that message even more And so if you can pull off a piano concerto in a major key and do it well and make it sound majestic, I think that's a big feat. Yeah, I can agree. And I think that it, I think it's very interesting to see this major key aspect taken because it does, as we said at the end of the first one, you know, it really does bring that kind of like, oh, you know, this is fun feeling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We're at the end of, we're like at the end of a really good performance of The Rock too. The last thing I'm going to be saying is, oh, that was fun, you know? Oh, wow. Nice and refreshing. Yeah, nice. Like, that was enjoyable. You know, (laughs) you're usually sitting there like, oh my god. Yeah, you're usually exhausted after listening to that. Uh, And I don't blame you. I'm exhausted. And I will say... I'm exhausted listening to this piece. Um, the amount of the amount of eighth notes and like technical things that are happening in this is crazy. And the amount ma- the amount to keep up with. There's not a lot of repeated material or themes, mm-hmm. and so you're just kind of sitting there um, listening to a million notes fly a minute, and yeah. you're like, "Are we at the beginning? Or are we at the end?" Because you don't know because you don't hear anything being repeated that often. I don't know. You can correct me if I'm wrong. No, no, that's that's pretty accurate. As we said at the during the first movement that we listened to, it feels very through composed. Um, and there are a lot of there are a lot of technical things that he's doing that feel very much so like he was really good at certain things, right? And so he put them as much as he could into this piece, um, right? So like those parallel fourths on the piano, which are hard as heck to do, um, and do them well, right? So there are a lot of those, there are a lot of these, like, big leaps, um, I do think that at times he went more for virtuosity at the piano over compositional decisions, does that make mm-hmm. sense? Yeah. You know? Which, yeah. And that, and that, him. um, that ties into the the idea that it's more through compose than it is following a specific form. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But all overall, 10 out of 10, if I was a concert pianist, I would probably consider playing this. I think one of the good things about this, if you were a concert pianist playing this, is that nobody else is going to be playing this. That's true. Know? Yeah. If, um, you, if you play this at a competition, there's a 99% chance that nobody else is playing this. Yeah, so I think... And we talk a lot about, you know, how many people in a standard competition are going to be playing, you know, the Rock 2 or the Tchaikovsky 1. It breaks my heart a little when they, when I look at the program and I see like two or three people playing the same piece from, or like the same movement of a piece. Mm -hmm. And I can't, I can't imagine how, how stressful that must be. Yeah. Right. But if you're doing something like this, 
I don't think you've got to worry that much about other people. And I do actually think from a competition standpoint, right, because this has so much virtuosic actions in it, I could see it being a really good competition piece, right? Just because the judges don't really care about the music as much as they care about how good are you at playing this piece, you know? That's a good point, yeah. Yeah. But it also does help if the piece that you're playing is absolutely gorgeous. Looking at you, Shostakovich, uh, second piano concerto. Yeah, call it out. Call it out. We love Shostakovich. But yeah. So, all in all, 10 out of 10, I'd recommend it. I would really be interested in hearing more of this guy's music, because I have never heard of him. No, and like, when I was doing research for his life, I was, I'll admit, I was underwhelmed um, about listening to his music, and I was like, his life's not that interesting, he didn't do that much besides teach and, um, you know, get divorced and move to Paris, but like... I was like, well, surely enough, if your life isn't that interesting, your music's not going to be interesting, right? Wrong. Um, he yeah. wrote some very interesting music. This is a beautiful piece. It's very... Mm-hmm. I could I could definitely imagine myself listening to this at a concert for the first time and really, really liking it. And that would probably inspire me to do research about his life um, mm-hmm. if I wasn't doing this po- podcast. So... yes. I think everyone should check out our boy, uh, Moskowski. I almost yes. said Mostakovich. <laughs> <laughs> I almost said Mizorski a little bit earlier. Oh, so. see? Um, and count how that's... many... You can uh, play a fun game and count how many times you forget his last name. So true. How many times you try to figure out how you're supposed to say it? <laughs> and and... He, he had an impressive mustache. Did a very impressive mustache? can't preface that enough 10 out of 10 if that's not the reason why you like this guy i don't know what is i don't know what to tell you Mm -hmm. awesome well thank you so much for tuning into the podcast and if you'd like to keep up with us on social media you can follow us on instagram at hi-ho podcast if you want to shoot us an email with composers you think we should cover next time or any observations you made from the music we listened to today you can email us at the podcast at gmail.com and again my name is victoria sunden and i'm david westbrook and we'll see you next week bye bye, bye.